Hello Bulls fans and welcome to another episode of the Bulls HQ podcast. My name is Mark, thank you for joining me. Hope you're all doing well out there in Bulls land. Recording this one straight after the loss to the San Antonio Spurs. I'm not sure what it is about me and (laughs) recording a podcast straight after a terrible loss. It's sort of happened in successive weeks, I think. Uh, Last week they had that terrible offensive display against the New Orleans Pelicans. And I think the week before may have been that OKC game where they lost by 32 points. And recording this after the Spurs game when the Bulls got absolutely destroyed by 39 points, probably one of the worst games I've seen in a long time played by the Bulls. I said that after the OKC game, but I think this one actually takes the cake over that OKC game considering the players that San Antonio were without and the fact that for a lot of the time, they were running second and third units out there, and those second and third units from the Spurs were actually cleaning up and toweling up the Bulls, putting up an even bigger lead than what the starters had sort of established. So that one was a painful loss, made even worse because of the injury to Lowry Markin, and doesn't look significant, but it was an ankle sprain that kept him out of the game for the second half. So any any real reason to keep watching that game was sort of taken away the minute Markin and I guess left the game. So pretty flat at the moment, as you would expect, but that's okay. We'll still pull it along and get through this week's games, go through the themes of this week's games, what I liked, what I didn't like, as well as going through a bit of a mailbag. So I reached out to those that followed me on Twitter asking for some questions, sort of planning ahead and figuring that the Bulls were going to have a bit of a lackluster game. So rather than just dwelling on those games, I thought I'd do something a little bit different and go through, go through the, the mailbag and answer some listener questions and those questions put forward to me via Twitter and just to get a bit of a take on things on the draft, on trades, on just the team in general and just to... I guess to give you some sort of different content rather than, like I said, dwelling on these terrible games, which no one probably really wants to relive if they haven't already, uh, if they've already watched them or if they haven't watched them, they probably don't want to be watching them anyway. But touching on the, the, the high level stuff quickly in terms of these weeks of games. So firstly, the Bulls played the Raptors, I think it was on Wednesday. Interesting game, this one, because it looked like it was going to be over at halftime. The Bulls found themselves down by 20 points, I believe, 65 to 45. It looked like it was done. It was another typical game where the Bulls really got destroyed in the second quarter. And it looked like the game was done at halftime. But the Bulls actually managed to crawl back into it. And they they scored 69 second-half points, which was more than nice, I guess. And... They were able to actually shut down the Raptors defensively in the fourth quarter as well, led mostly by the second unit of Bobby Portis, Chris Dunn, and Denzel Valentine. So I'll touch on Bobby Portis a little bit later as well as he's made his return now back into the rotation after an eight-game suspension. But those three guys really led the team back down from a 20-point lead all the way up to, I guess, single digits. It got to within three points there at one stage in the final quarter, and Dwayne Casey was playing his starters in order to close out the game. And even with the starters in, the Raptors did look a little bit shaky in it. And for a moment there, I thought the Bulls were going to get a a win. And obviously, we don't want the Bulls clocking up wins, but it would have been a well-deserved one had they done so, given that they fought back from 20 points down. They were really competing defensively, forcing a lot of steals, 10 steals for the game. And the assist to turnover ratio, something I've been following closely for the season, was really good. So 26 assists and only 13 turnovers. So probably one of the better games for the Bulls thus far in the young season. So 
It was one of those offensive performances which actually looked quite good. 50% from the field, 30, 38% from the three-point line, and as I said, 69 points in the second half. So it was one of those good tank losses where the Bulls, well, they played a pretty bad first half but managed to make, remain competitive, uh, got into the game defensively, which led to their offense. And against the good Eastern Conference team, were able to keep it close but ultimately lose the game, which is obviously ideal for the tank. So... Interesting game against the Toronto Raptors, but it was completely different efforts against the Indiana Pacers. So another one of those teams in the East that are fighting for a playoff playoff spot is the Pacers. Probably one of the more surprising teams thus far with Victor Oladipo playing so well and even DeMontis Sabonis coming over from that trade as well from OKC. He's having a terrific season as well. And, And the Pacers have been one of those teams that have really gotten up and down the court, have been scoring quite well, and they did it with ease against the Bulls on Friday night. This one was pretty much over at quarter time, even though the, I think the deficit at halftime may have been 10 or so points. Just just watching the game, it felt like a game that the Bulls were never going to get back into, even though the deficit wasn't very big. And that's what pretty much what happened come the third quarter, that the pace has sort of exploded onto... A 20-point lead at one point in the third quarter, and the game was pretty much done. And there was just no efficient offense coming from the Bulls at all, from really, really from anyone, really. So, I mean, again, Bobby Portis was probably the best player. 20 points, 11 rebounds for for Bobby in his second game back. Chris Dunn probably had one of his better games as a Chicago Bull. Uh, 16 points. Five assists, four rebounds, and and three steals. Had the four turnovers, so he continues to have some turnover issues, but probably one of his better games as a Chicago Bull. But the starters were really bad in this one. So Robin Lopez, Jerry and Grant, and Paul Zips only combined for seven points total. So those guys really struggled, and Larry Markkinen didn't have his most efficient game either. 12 points on 14 shots, two from nine from the three-point line. So... Probably wasn't one of Lowry's best games either. And it's just one of those games where the Bulls weren't really able to create much. Even though they had the 24 assists and and the 12 turnovers, it wasn't a game where the offense was really humming along 39.8% from the field and just just under 26% from the three-point line. So they weren't able to create any efficient offense. Their, def- their defense certainly wasn't good enough against the Indiana Pacers. The Pacers managed to hit threes. Uh, 12 threes, Boyan Bogdanovic, particularly in that third quarter, he must have had at least three or four three-pointers in that third quarter, which really kick-started the Pacers' second half lead, jumping up into that 20-point range, and the Bulls just weren't able to uh, recover from that point onwards, which I guess was almost a precursor into the Spurs game the next night, so back-to-back for the Bulls, moving on to a Saturday night game against the San Antonio Spurs, and it was almost more of the same from the Pacers game, but this time against the Spurs. And if you're going to give that sort of effort against the Spurs, then you're just going to get absolutely destroyed. And that's pretty much what happened for the Bulls. Lost that game by 39 points, even though the Bulls put up 94. They let up 133. And I, I guess this is why it's important to not take early season numbers into account in terms of team-wide numbers. And, and the reason why I suggest that is... Uh, there was a bit of talk about how the Bulls were actually playing on defense this week, and surprisingly, they were a top 10 defense. But we're so young, or well, the NBA season is so young at this point that 
numbers can be swayed so so easily given that the sample size is so, sample size is so small and I hate to see what the defensive rating is after this Spurs game but you know after letting 105 points up to the Indiana Pacers and now 133 to the San Antonio Spurs any good defensive rating numbers that the Bulls may have had they've been pretty quickly squashed so this team um even though they were performing pretty decently for a little period there on defense they've had two pretty Pretty poor back-to-back defensive efforts, which is a shame to see. And against this San Antonio team, which weren't necessarily playing their best team, didn't have Danny Green or Kawhi Leonard out there, so and obviously Tony Parker as well. So there's there's three rotational players that were out for the Spurs, and the Bulls just couldn't match it at all. The starters were killed. Uh, Paul Zipser just eight minutes, two points. Another game where he, I guess, didn't really do anything. It, Paul Zipser is getting to the point where I'm not actually sure what he actually does on a basketball court. I think he's one of those players which I've talked about numerously on this podcast where he's probably going to be better suited as a role player on a good team where he's where his role is very reduced and he can just focus on those simple simple things. But at, currently with the Bulls, he's being asked to do way too much. And you look at the box, box, box score after the games and you, and you just wonder what Paul Zipser is doing on the court. And uh, I mean, you can, you can come to that realization when you're watching him on the floor as well. But two points, one rebound, one steal, three fouls in eight minutes. And it's, it's just not good enough from Zipser. So he's obviously been promoted back into the starting small forward position after the, the injury to David Nwaba, who will be out for probably two to four weeks. It would It would appear... He was poor. Justin Holiday had another terrible shooting game, one from 10 from the field. Again, another player that's being asked to do way, way too much. Three points, four rebounds, two assists. Again, not providing much. Jerry and Grant, a similar thing. Had the, a good shooting night, four from six from the field. Had the eight assists and the nine points, but I'm not sure if Jerry actually affected the game much at all. And given the Bulls lost by 39 points, no one really affected the game at all. But... um it was just another one of those games where the Bulls were just never in it from the get-go, getting down from 20 points early on into the game and then never really recovering. They did get it, get get the lead down to around 12 points in that second quarter, but we just knew at some point that the Spurs were going to out-execute the Bulls, and that's exactly what they did in the second half. The Bulls gave up 70 points in the second half to the Spurs. So as you could imagine, that sort of led to some post-game comments from Hoiberg questioning the team's effort and intensity and every time he does that uh, post game when he starts talking about the players not executing defensively not sticking towards the plan specifically on transit transition defense and just not being mentally aligned and focused with what the coaching staff were asking of the players I understand that he's sort of calling out the players when he does that and he's not necessarily wrong when he's talking about the players not having effort on any given night, whether it's against the Pacers or a game like the Spurs. But when he says those things, it's an indirect shot to himself as well because as the coach, it's your responsibility to have the players on check in terms of being on point defensively, knowing who is guarding who, knowing whether you're going to switch on certain plays onto certain players, knowing those tendencies of those defensive players, knowing that you will need to get back on, on transition or how you want to play that transi- transition defense. These sorts of things, 
the players need to know going into the game, but it's Hoiberg and his coaching staff's responsibility to make sure that the players are aligned on all that going into the game. And if they're not, that is an indictment on, on him as much as it is at the players. So it's odd when I see those comments from Hoiberg, even though he is right, he's, I guess, taking a shot at himself. So I'm sure we'll see lots of quotes about effort going forward. And the Bulls don't play for another three to four days. Their next game is Wednesday against the Oklahoma City Thunder. So it'll be interesting to see what Hoiberg does from a practice perspective. I'm sure the Bulls are going to have one of their greatest practices of all time. And it'll be interesting to see what he does from a rotation perspective. So we'll see if Larry Markinen is good to go. As I mentioned before, the ankle sprain didn't look significant, but you know maybe the Bulls will be cautious with him. There's not necessarily any point rushing him back straight away if that ankle is a little bit weak. So maybe he doesn't play against OKC. So it'll be interesting what happens at power forward, particularly now that Paul Zipser is starting at small forward. How does how does Fred Hoiberg manage that? Does he put Zipser back to the bench as the power forward and start Denzel Valentine? What does he do in place of Larry Markkinen? I'm assuming Portis goes straight into that power forward position. So that rotation will be interesting, as well as what is going to happen from a point guard perspective. We've been seeing Hoiberg running Grant and Dunn in, in lineups together. So that's something that he's probably going to be exploring a little bit more of, I would imagine. Started the second half of that Spurs game with Zipser on the bench and a starting backcourt of Grant and Dunn. So it'll be interesting to see who actually starts at point guard for the Bulls. Will it remain Grant or will Dunn finally get that starting point guard position? Will they be playing a lot of minutes together? That's something I want to see going forward this week and with, I guess, four days between the next game, it'll Fred Hoiberg and his coaching staff will have a lot of time to sort of work out what their next move is going to be. Anyways, moving on from the games, as I said, that were depressing. I wanted to talk a little bit about Bobby Portis. It's a story that's going to remain until, I guess, Nikola Mirotic makes a return of some sorts or whether we get some more news as to what is happening with that situation. But I guess the latest update between the, the whole Mirotic versus Portis fiasco is that Bobby Portis returned from suspension, serving his eight-game suspension and returned this week against the Toronto Raptors. And to be fair to Bobby, he's looked really good in his return. He's actually played quite strong double-doubles in all of the games, I believe, uh, apart from the Spurs game where he didn't necessarily get the rebounds, but 20-10 and against the Toronto Raptors at 21 points, 13 rebounds against the Raptors, then against the Pacers. He also had 20 points and 11 rebounds. And then tonight against the San Antonio Antonio Spurs, only the six rebounds, but 17 points on 5-11 shooting. So he's come back. He's putting up some volume numbers. He's shooting the ball well. He's rebounding well. Defense still isn't there as we, I guess, would expect based on his limited athleticism at this point. But he has come back and has played as well as you could expect from a guy that had a lot to... I guess live up to and a lot, a lot to prove given what, what had happened with him and Meritage during, during preseason. But it still doesn't sit well for me or with me rather to see Bobby Portis out there playing basketball whilst Nicola Meritage is out, I guess still nursing that broken face. And the thing I wanted to talk about and what I wanted to address was during the Toronto game, I'm, I'm not sure what broadcast you guys may have been listening to, but I was listening to the Bulls broadcast with Chuck Swirsky and Stacey King. So Chuck was in place of Neil Funk for this game, which was 
very much an upgrade, but I guess that's a side point and uh, one I won't dwell into. But he was with Stacey King on the call and, and King was really trying to brush this whole issue aside, which really, really bothered me. And the thing that bothered me about it was the way Stacey was addressing this issue as if it was just any old... I guess locker room scuffle that teammates may have from occasion where they're pushing each other around or, you know, they may get into a heated argument between players or between coaches and players or whatever it may be. He was trying to pass it off as a usual event that happens between players in a locker room or on, on, on the practice floor. And I don't know how you can sort of sit there and justify this as something that happens all the time. Now, Obviously, we don't know everything that happens. I will assume Stacey King has better a better idea of what happened at that on that practice floor than what I know personally, given you know how close to the organization he is. But at the same time, you can't sit there and explain this to me as it being a regular occurrence or something that happens quite frequently in the league. I accept that players get into it with each other in practice all the time. I think that's something that would be a common occurrence. But something that isn't common is a player knocking another player out effectively. And that's basically what happened. Miritic had a concussion. Miritic had a broken face. King went on to say when players get into it with each other in practice, they don't mean to hurt each other. Well, when you're throwing a punch, I'm pretty sure you're meaning to hurt someone. So... Stacy, it wasn't a common occurrence. It wasn't a regular scuffle between teammates. It was irregular. It was really annoying to hear Stacy King talk about the Bulls' issue between Miritich and, and Portis. It's just a regular common occurrence between two heated teammates that just got happened to get into it. It was anything but that. And I'm kind of annoyed that it continuously gets put off as that and that Miritich is being sold as this villain of sorts, and there is a taking of sides process going on with more favoring Bobby Portis at the minute. That's ridiculous, and I'm not sitting here saying that Miritich isn't blameless. Obviously, based on the reports we received, he was an instigator of sorts for this scuffle. So all I'm suggesting is everyone should have some form of blame, but the way it's sort of being carried on about at the moment is that Miritich is the one more to blame, and based on King's comments in that game as well, in that Toronto Raptors game, he was sort of, I guess, brushing over the issue as if it was just something that just happens generally. And that really annoyed me. And it, I guess, has put a sour taste in my mouth on Bobby Portis's return, which I guess is my own issue. You, you don't necessarily have to feel that way yourself. But I don't know how I feel about Bobby Portis being back and playing for the Bulls. Granted, he is playing well. He's doing everything he can to, I guess, redeem himself. He's out there playing really well, putting up double-doubles and doing all that he can. And I guess he's trying to move past it as well. And he had a comment after the game about how he had his dream taken away from him for a period there. And again, that was a comment that I guess probably annoyed me as well. And maybe I'm taking it too seriously. Maybe Bobby just had a bit of slip on words. And I guess he's not the best media performer going out going around but at the same time it was something that soured the situation for me a little bit more so I don't know how to feel about this Portis thing I guess some of you who are listening to this probably think I'm being a little bit dramatic about the whole thing and I get it I understand why you would have that view but it still doesn't sit well to me with how this has been handled in terms of a suspension I don't like the narrative that's formed around it from those that are close around the team and how teammates are siding with Portis, how Stacey King is sort of talking about this issue in games, 
it doesn't feel comfortable with me and whilst I want this issue to disappear I also want us to talk about this honestly and trying to pass it off as just any old regular occurrence really really annoyed me I guess but anyways that was my rant moving along to something a little bit more enjoyable I guess at least for me hopefully for you guys as well but I thought I'd go through the mailbag questions that I did receive this week so Shout out to everyone that sent me through some questions, anyone that takes some time out of their day to sort of hit me up on Twitter and respond to me and asking questions. I really do appreciate it. It's awesome and I thank I thank you for contributing to the podcast. It really does mean a lot. So what I'll do is I'll just take it from the top going down through the questions that I did receive and this first one that I got was from Tom Nache, so at Tom Nache on Twitter. Tom asks, who has surprised you with better than expected play? And inversely, who has been worse than expected? Now, given that I've just come off that rant, I'm in a bit of a mood. So let's start with who has been worse than expected. And I guess the the first guy that sort of jumps into my mind here is definitely Cristiano Felicio. Big Chris has not been good this season. And to be frank, maybe my expectations were a little bit high. And maybe that's why I've got him at front of mind, but I was expecting Felicio at some point this season to be really pushing Robin Lopez for that starting center position. And at the moment, that doesn't look like it's going to be happening any anytime soon. And after signing that big fourth four-year $32 million deal, I thought there was a chance that Felicio was going to be this team's starting center for that, for that four-year period that he had that contract. And based on how he played last season with the team and, and projecting that forward I thought there was a good chance that he could be a nice pick and roll big man that can almost mimic what Houston are doing with Clint Capella in the way they used Capella I thought the Bulls could do something similar with Felicio but of course Bulls don't necessarily have the players around Felicio that best bring out his game now having said that his performance isn't completely dependent on those that he's playing around certainly not defensively I think from a defensive perspective He's really regressed as well. He definitely looks a touch slow out there. His rotations haven't been good. His help defense hasn't been good. His positioning just in general from a body perspective, his footwork, it's leading to a lot of fouls. So defensively, I haven't liked his game. And even though there may be some reasons for his offensive game struggling because of those he's playing with, defensively, I don't think there's any excuses for Felicio. So he's definitely been a player that's been disappointing for me as well as, I guess, some other balls that have been around for two to three years now. And I guess who I'm taking aim at here is guys like Denzel Valentine, Jerry and Grant, and Paul Zipser. Now, some of that is a little bit unfair, as I've sort of been banging on about for the last few weeks, that these guys are limited role players who are being asked to do far more than what they actually can do. But I, I guess I did have some expectations of them improving somewhat, even in those expanded roles. But... Again, what I've seen is players regressing to a level that I was not expecting. So with Jerry and Grant, even though his overall play has probably been on par to what he was doing last season, his shooting certainly has not been the same. So from a three-point percentage perspective, his numbers have come down from 36.6% down to 16%, which is just a dramatic fall. And given that he was shooting 22% in his rookie season and he got that up to 36.6% last season, I thought that was a good building block for him going forward and potentially he could become a good shooter from the Bulls bench. But 
I guess the opposite has happened. He's now starting and he's now a 16% three-point shooter, which is obviously absolutely terrible. Denzel Valentine, whilst he is a good three-point shooter, I haven't necessarily seen anything else from him in his game that translates from the college level to the NBA level that suggests that he's going to be a valuable piece going forward. And I haven't been Valentine's biggest supporter going around, but at the same time, I was hoping to see a little bit more progression from him from an on-ball perspective in terms of creation and I haven't really seen that be that for himself or the or for others. He was meant to be coming into this draft as an, an maybe not an elite passer, but a very good passer. And his limited physical tools have sort of disallowed him to sort of really showcase that basketball IQ and that natural passing ability that he does have. And I was hopeful with an expanded role and another year under his belt, and hopefully free from any injuries that he may have. Uh, sustained in the rookie season that he was able to sort of progress a little bit but he hasn't really done that from a creations perspective I think Valentine has a role in this league as a bench guy that can come in and, and really shoot that three ball well can make those basic plays but anything more than that he clearly can't do and that was hope something I was hopeful of seeing some signs this season now again it's, a, it's the season's just started we're only 11-12 games into the season so he may come on towards the back end of the season but Given he will be 24 years old at some point this season, I'm not overly high on the chances of that happening. Similarly with Paul Zipser, again, he's shown that he can shoot the three ball well, but I question what else he can do well. So those guys have, I guess, performed below expectations, at least my expectations, depending on what expectation you may have had on those individual players. They may be producing as, as per expected. So maybe you have a different answer to that. In terms of players that have exceeded my expectations, definitely Larry Markinen. I think that's the easiest answer there. I've said this before on the podcast a few times, but the way he's sort of played in this rookie season and what he's shown me from, I guess, outside of his shooting, those are the sorts of things I was expecting to see from him in his second or third year in the pros, not in his first 15 games as an NBA player. So I'm talking about things like his rebounding, his passing ability, the fact that he's shown more defensive awareness and IQ and an ability to actually move his feet. Uh, Those were things I thought that may come in time, but they've presented themselves pretty much from the get-go. So that has definitely been a breath of fresh air for me in terms of my own evaluation of marketing. I probably was a little bit too critical of him and he has certainly exceeded my expectations as has David Nwaba. Now, I liked the pickup of Nwaba. I thought he could be a valuable piece for the Bulls. I didn't expect that I'd be so high on him to the point where I wanted him to be starting this early in the season, but thankfully, that's exactly what happened. Hoiberg inserted him into the starting unit, and Nwaba played really, really well before that injury. So I knew who he could hustle. I knew he was an energy player, a defensive player. I didn't have much of a jump shot, but would use his intangibles and that that grit factor, I guess, to really get in there and change a game and influence games. But I wasn't expecting him to be this influential. And and as we've seen this season, when he has had that core time and when he's been out there, the team has really played really hard. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the defensive effort has sort of slipped once Nwaba's been out. So he's another player that's certainly exceeded my my own expectations. But out of those two guys, not... No other player, I guess, has done that for me. So Bobby Portis, he's only three games into his his season, but he's pretty much doing Bobby Portis things, shooting the ball, rebounding the ball, not playing much defense. So he's doing as expected. Justin Holiday, 
a terrific veteran to have around a team, but at the same time, he's being asked to do way too much, and his poor shooting numbers are sort of reflecting that. I was expecting that from him. And Chris Dunn as well has sort of served as expected at this point. I I don't think he's necessarily exceeded my expectations, but at the same time, he hasn't underwhelmed as well. So it'll be interesting to see how Dunn progresses through the season, and hopefully as the season goes on, I can add him to the list of players that have certainly exceeded my expectations, but currently he's not there. So yeah, probably more guys that have underwhelmed that have then overperformed, and you know hopefully that changes as the season progresses. Moving along to the next question. Now, Tom did ask a question about Jalil Okafor, and I'll merge this with another question that I did get from Okafor from at real underscore world slayer. So both Tom and real underscore world slayer wanted to know about the Bulls picking up Okafor, but the reason why I wanted to use at real underscore word slayers question is because I liked his emotive language on this one. <laughs> I guess it's sort of, it sort of alludes to how I'm going to answer this question, but he, his question was, how in, insane are we if, if the Bulls give up a second for Okafor and does Okafor for Nico work if Nico agrees? Now, asking or answering rather that first part of that question I don't necessarily know if the Bulls are insane for giving up a second-round pick for Okafor. I would much prefer to keep a second-round pick over adding Jalil Okafor. But, I mean, that's just my opinion. But I don't think it would be insane for them to necessarily give up a second-round pick for Okafor. Now, having said that, with the Bulls' propensity to constantly throw out second-round picks, I would prefer them to hang on to some, particularly given the fact that there are good players available in the second round, as we've seen in the last couple of drafts. And I'm not overly high on Jalil Okafor at all. And given that the the Sixers have declined Okafor's option for next season, he will be a free agent. So if the Bulls are really enamored with Okafor, maybe they can go after him in the offseason if they must add him to the roster, which I hope they don't. But if they have to, maybe do that in the offseason rather than giving away valuable draft assets that you need as a rebuilding team now rather than, you know, spending them on someone like Okafor. So I wouldn't trade a second-round pick for Jalil Okafor. Now, whether you would trade Miritich for Okafor, I'm not too sure. I'm not sure the Sixers would potentially want to do that. If you think about their roster, they have a similar player to Miritich in Dario Saric. They have Ben Simmons playing at power forward. Uh, defensively, I understand he plays point guard offensively, but I'm not too sure how how often you can run a lineup where you have Simmons, Miritich, and Embiid on the floor. And as I said before, you've got Saric on in that front line, as well as Rashawn Holmes and Amir Johnson. So I'm not sure if the Sixers are in desperate need of a big man. So whilst it makes sense for the Bulls to get rid of Miritich because of the issue with Portis, I'm not sure if Philadelphia is the best landing spot for him either. So... Now, if you can get Okafor for Miritich, I guess he can do that, assuming the Sixers wouldn't want to do that. As I mentioned, I don't think they would want to do that, but I guess it would make sense for both parties to move on from players that neither neither team really wants or needs, but whether those two teams are, I guess, a good fit for those certain players, I'm not too sure. So I don't think the Bulls should be trading a pick for Jalil Okafor. I don't think the Sixers will accept a trade for Miritich, for Okafor, so I don't really see the connection between these two in terms of dealing, making a deal for Okafor and sending him to the Bulls. 
Moving on now to another question, or another couple questions around the center position for the Chicago Bulls. So the first question comes from my friend Felipe Carvajes, who I know I've stuffed up his last name because I can never pronounce it, as well as a question from at Black Sitcom Dad. Now, the the reason why I'm grouping these two questions is they touch on a particular theme, and that being Robin Lopez, and how, I guess, his status on the team should be currently interpreted and what that means going forward. So Felipe asked the question around, does Cristiano Felicio's poor play so far affect any of the Bulls' thoughts on trading Lopez and how that would affect Lowry's development? Black Sitcom Dad asks, do you think trading Rolo in the interest of the tank and or acquiring a small asset, e.g. a late second rounder, would actually hurt player development? So, both guys are asking a similar type of question, but are approaching it from a different angle. So Felipe is looking at it more from, I guess, Felicio's regression and that, I guess, maybe stalling any thoughts of trading Lopez and what that may do in terms of player development, as well as Black Sitcom Dad sort of thinking about whether it actually sort of makes sense to trade Rolo for a second round pick, for example, and if the Bulls were to do that, how does that impact player development? So I guess initially my thought was, let's just trade Robin Lopez as soon as we possibly can. Let's try and get a first round pick for him. If we can't get a first round pick, maybe we can get some sort of a young player or a or a second round pick or some smallish asset like that to sort of complement this tanking approach. But the more I start to think about it, the more I think keeping Robin Lopez makes sense. And the reason why I say that is, like Felipe sort of mentioned, Lowry, Lowry Markin's development and, and Black sitcom data there sort of alludes to player development and potentially Rob, trading Robin Lopez sort of hurting that player development. And I think it trading Robin Lopez would extend out past Lowry Markin. Now, Lowry has definitely been the biggest benefactor of having a player like Robin Lopez next to, next to him at center. And if you haven't read Stefano's article from The Athletic around Robin Lopez and what he does for his teammates, not only his opposite big man, but also those around him and the guard positions, then I would certainly suggest reading that. It's a really good piece. And it pretty much reflects every reason as to why you would want to keep a player like Lopez around a young and rebuilding team, particularly a young team that has their best player developing at power forward. So someone like Lopez can get in there and box out and can really take Markkinen's man away from the defensive boards and allow Markkinen to come in there and really come in and grab those strong rebounds as he's been doing. As I mentioned before, he's he's sort of exceeding my expectations on the glass. And, And a big part of that is because Robin Lopez is making it his mission to not only box out his man, but also to take out Markkinen's man from rebounding position as well to allow Markkinen to get that rebounding or to, or to get that rebound I should say so by trading away Lopez and putting in Felicio into their starting position does that small thing still exist I'm not too sure if it does I'm not sure if Felicio is that same sort of defensive rebounder or has the ability to box out in that way with that sort of IQ that someone like Robin Lopez has similarly on pick and rolls Robin Lopez has been awesome in getting Lowry marketing open shots, but he's also been fantastic in setting screens for the guards. So not only will moving Robin Lopez hurt Larry, Larry Markkinen's development, but it will also hurt the development of guys like Jerry and Grant and Denzel Valentine, and probably most importantly, someone like Chris Dunn. Players who 
don't have the best ball handling skills. They're not necessarily the fastest or the quickest guys out there. So they really need to rely on pick and roll to actually create space from their defenders. So with someone like Robin Lopez out there, who is a terrific screen setter for his teammates, that can really help someone like Chris Dunn get into the lane. That can really help him get some confidence and some steam going into the paint, which can help him develop his game inside, which is obviously something he really needs to develop. And without Lopez there, maybe Dunn is sort of relying on his ball handling to create separation. And as we've seen, he isn't very good with his handles just yet. He is turnover prone. So if you take out that screen setter, which Robin Lopez is, does that make it harder for someone like Chris Dunn to create shots? It probably does. So Initially, my position on this whole thing was, yes, the Bulls need to trade Robin Lopez, but as I've seen this sort of season progressing, I'm now of the opinion that the Bulls need to keep Lopez around, and I guess the fact that the team is already historically so bad offensively and have this sort of regressed defensively as well with Robin around on the team, it doesn't necessarily to hurt from a win-loss perspective keeping him around. Yes, the team would be significantly worse with Lopez gone, but by keeping him around and helping him aid the development of Mark and Dunn and these sorts of players, that provides a benefit that maybe a an additional second round pick doesn't. And it's hard to quantify that, I guess. It's something that's more observed and you can't really, I guess, note down the actual effect of that. But I think it's something certainly important to, to keep in mind. And as we progress going forward, I think I think Robin Lopez is going to be a very important player for someone like Markkinen. And until Felicio steps up and proves that he's able to do the things that Lopez can do, I don't think Lopez is expendable at this point. So it's not a position I thought I would be having heading into the season. I thought uh, I would be maintaining my strong stance of trading Robin Lopez as soon as possible for some sort of pick. But I've weakened on my position and I'm actually quite comfortable on it. So at this point, if you ask me right now, I think the Bulls should keep Robin Lopez on board. I think he's still going to be bad with him around. And I think he really does help the development of Larry Markin, but also the guards as well. So I'm all for keeping Robin Lopez at this point. So thanks for those questions at Black Sitcom Dad, as well as Felipe Hayes. I really appreciate it, guys. Moving along to the next question. This one comes from at Henry Gwindy. So Henry asks, I know you don't agree with the move, but is there any logical way to defend the Bulls exercising their option on Cameron Payne? So as Henry sort of alluded to, I've um, been pretty vocal, as I'm sure most Bulls fans, Bulls fans have been around the Bulls exercising the option for Cameron Payne's rookie deal for next season. So I don't think there's really a justifiable way to explain the decision to exercise that option. I think the way the Bulls would try to explain that option is to, I guess, to sort of sell it as, unfortunately, Payne has been injured during his time here at Chicago, so they may not necessarily have had a good chance to have a look in terms of grading how how good he could be, whether he is that point guard of the future or not. So the fact that he has been hurt, I think, would be a reason as to why the Bulls would say, look, let's exercise his option. It's only for $3.3 million next season. It's not overly cost costly to keep him around. And, you know, it may be a small probability that he breaks out and becomes a good rotational player, but the fact that he's a cost control asset for $3.3 million, maybe let's just give him one, one more year and see how this thing plays out. Now, that's how I think they would try to justify it. 
Whether they're correct in doing so, I don't agree with that. I think he's a sunk cost at this point and moving on from him and allowing for that roster spot to be available for them to sort of pick up another guy like a David Nwaba from the, I guess, the free agent pile or, or an undrafted rookie of sorts or whatever it may be, taking a shot on another player that hasn't, I guess, had two or three years in the system and, and sort of trying to develop someone else as we sort of can see the Bulls have been very keen to find that next point guard for themselves, but they haven't necessarily found that. And I don't think Cameron Payne is that answer. So yeah, as you sort of alluded to there, Henry, I wasn't a big fan of the team exercising Cameron Payne's option. I don't think it's easily justifiable, but I think they could find a way to really sell this to the fan base. And not that anyone would agree with the way they would sell that that particular uh, position, but uh, I think that's the way they would sort of logical logically try to construct an argument as to why they exercise that option around pain. So thanks for sending that question in, Henry. Probably not the answer you wanted to hear back, but I think that's the way the Bulls would play that one, unfortunately. Moving along to the next question. So this one comes from at Colin Manning 2. So early days, but from the top five projected picks, who would be the best fit for the Bulls? Feels like Doncic. So good question from Colin. So we're moving along to the draft now, and obviously that's something all Bulls fans... We'll be keeping an eye on, and, and with NCAA competition sort of heating up now, starting up, it's obviously going to become a topic that's more relevant for a tanking team like the Bulls going forward. So it's probably a little bit early to ask right now who who fits the best, because I think there's there's a lot of questions around guys like Marvin Bagley. I'm not really cons- I'm not really sure necessarily what his best position in the NBA is going to be, whether it's power forward or at center, and how that sort of mixes with someone like Larry Markkinen, who I'm still unsure as to whether his position, or his best position at least, in the NBA will be at power forward or center. So I'm interested to see how Bagley performs this season and how he potentially will sort of round out into what position he may fit into. So Bagley is obviously someone to to keep an eye on, as well as someone like DeAndre Ayton. And I guess, yeah, I have less reservations about what position he will be in the NBA. He looks like he's going to be projecting like a, an NBA centered, center, rather. So, so is Mo Bamba. So those guys next to Larry Markin would make for an interesting front court. But I, I guess the question is, how, how will they sort of progress through their college season? Will they be justifiable for whatever position the Bulls are, uh, are picking at? And, and will they fit nicely next to someone like Larry Markkinen, and to a lesser extent, Chris Dunn and Zach Levine. So you've got those big men. So there's a good chance if the Bulls do land a top five pick that they will be picking one of Marvin Bagley, Muhammad Bamba, or Marvin Bagley. So one of those three big men. So it'll be interesting to see which one they take of those three, particularly after they drafted Larry Markkinen in the 2017 draft. But if they were in the position to, to take someone like Michael Porter or Luka Doncic, but they go for a more of a wing player. So I'm not necessarily convinced that Michael Porter's best position in the NBA will be small forward. I think I think ideally he's someone that you could sort of swing between small forward and power forward. But if his best position is power forward, how does that fit with someone like Larry Markin? So that'll be something that'll be interesting to sort of see how that develops this season, not only for Porter, but also for for uh, Larry Markkinen as well. I want to see Markkinen play some center later on this season. So hopefully that can help with our assessment as to whether the Bulls go for a wing or whether they feel that Larry Markkinen is strictly a power forward and may need to go for a center. So 
But as you sort of alluded to, Luka Doncic seems like the best fit, and I would agree with that right away. I think the Bulls definitely need someone on the wing that can create off the dribble. Luka Doncic at the moment certainly seems like probably the best player in this draft from a pick-and-roll perspective. He's certainly someone that knows angles, is incredible at using his body in pick-and-roll. He's a pick-and-roll master of sorts. I do wonder about his his athleticism and his ability to create separation in the NBA as well of his his shot. I think his shot will improve and it'll be something that can be very reliable. But at six foot eight and two hundred and twenty pounds, playing between that shooting guard and small forward position, a hole that the Bulls obviously have at the moment, Doncic really is that option that I'm sort of leaning towards. So. I'll probably be watching more of Doncic than the college games, to be honest with you, because that's who I think fits best with the Bulls. And at the moment, based on the skill sets that I've seen of these players, to me, Doncic has that skill level and that IQ that the other players simply don't have. So if you have those sort of intangibles, those basketball IQ ability and that ability to work in pick and roll, you will immediately have my attention. So I think Doncic at the moment will be the best fit on this Bulls team based on who they have on the roster at the moment. But it's going to be a long season. Maybe someone like Marvin Bagley really steps out and, and you know, those concerns of, of whether he is a power forward or center, maybe he really establishes himself as one of those positions. And maybe it doesn't necessarily become a a big issue of sorts. So let's see how these players progress in their college hoop seasons and in Doncic's case, his season in the Euroleague. So let's ha- let's see how they go before really, I guess, getting married to the idea on any of them. I think we should remain open-minded on all five of those players, but I'm not extending my mind to think outside of those top five players because I'm trying to wish this into existence that the Bulls do get it themselves a top five, fi- top five pick in this draft. So fingers crossed. So thanks for that question, Colin. Next question comes from at Furious Jeff. So Jeff wants to know, who ends up having the better career, Doug McDermott or Paul Zipser? So interesting question, a bit of a left field question, I guess. And I've sort of been lamenting the Doug McDermott trade most recently. And, and the reason for that is I'm sure you've all seen that dunk that Doug, that Doug had, I think against the Phoenix Suns, where he came up for a reverse and really slammed it home with those sneaky hops that he does, does have and sort of did that little bit of a stare back as he was running back up the court and... Of course, after watching that dunk, I immediately thought about the Cameron Praying trade. And again, not to go back on to Cameron Praying too much, but I started to think about how much differently this Bulls offense could look with Doug McDermott in it. Now, obviously, they wouldn't have a good offense, but given the fact that the Bulls have a seismic hole at small forward, they don't have a lot of shooting on this roster, and they have a need of someone that can create off the dribble a little bit and do some things, which Doug obviously can. I was ruining that Cameron Payne trade again this week. Unfortunately, it doesn't die that that pain of uh, of wishing that trade never happened. But Doug's had a really good season for the Knicks thus far. He's producing as we sort of all knew he could do. He's not doing much outside of his shooting and his scoring, but what he can do well, he is doing well. He's shooting the three-point three ball above 40% again this year. He's, he's knocking in around eight points in 20 minutes or so, and his PER is around 15. So that's that's a pretty good role player. So... So I do miss Doug McDermott a little bit, but coming back to your question around who has the better career, be it McDermott or Paul Zipser, I would probably say McDermott. And even though Zipser has definitely more defensive tools and is more of an athletic player and is certainly the better defender of the two, I think McDermott has a skill that is of elite nature, whereas Paul Zipser doesn't have any skill that I think you would classify as being 
above average. He may be an average defender or well, maybe he is an above average defender. Maybe I'm being a little bit harsh, but his shooting certainly isn't above average. I don't think he can do anything else at an NBA level above average. So whereas Doug, even though he has holes in his game, that shooting really can be a weapon. Even in a 15-minute role, he can come in and bang in four threes in a quarter and there you go, the game has been separated based on his shooting. So I think the the Bulls really gave on gave up on McDermott too early. And given what they paid to get McDermott, it was interesting that they did move him. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, I think McDermott will have the better career. And and unfortunately, they're stuck with Zipser. And I'm I'm pretty sure at some point they'll move Zipser on, and he'll look even better at a, at a different team. So. It'll be interesting to see how this sort of plays out, but I would say that Doug McDermott is certainly on track to be having the better career at this point. So thanks for that question, Jeff. Moving on to the next question, which comes from at Hoop Capitan. So Hoop Capitan asks, is Nate Robinson the most electric player the Bulls have ever had? Interesting question. Possibly, but I... Can we really go past Derrick Rose in that question? Maybe. I, I guess maybe Nate Robinson from from the fact that you weren't necessarily expecting every single time for a guy that was picked up from the scrap heap on a veteran minimums contract to come in and do the things that he did, particularly that fourth or the fourth quarter and overtime in that playoff series against the Brooklyn Nets where he, I think he had 23 points off from memory. Those sorts of moments stick in your mind and, and they will go down in Bulls law forever. That So Brett Robinson certainly was an electric player, but I don't know if you can go back go past Derrick Rose, at least in the modern history, and obviously you've got Michael Jordan as well. Now, maybe my definition of what an electric player is differs to yours, but in terms of my excitement levels based on certain plays made by certain players, I think Derrick Rose and what he could do when he would drive into the into the lane and, and those how he could contort his body for those layups and make those crazy, crazy-ass plays, I think that was as electric as you will hear the United Center ever yell. And certainly from my own couch perspective, um, nothing got me out of the couch more than a Derrick Rose play compared to someone like Nate Robinson. I would certainly go with Derrick Rose in that instance. So interesting one. I could certainly see why you would say Nate Robinson, given given what he did for the Bulls. I think he'll have one of the most memorable one season since of any Bulls player ever. And and we're four or five years removed from that Robinson season and we're still talking about it. So I think it does speak to Robinson's lasting effect on this Bulls culture and, and what he meant to this team. And particularly for fans, after that Derrick Rose injury, the fact that he was able to step in and give this team some excitement, even though I guess we were just fresh off at a, a season there where Derrick Rose wasn't going to be going to be coming back and Nate Robinson sort of stepped in and provided some sort of level of enjoyment and maybe that unexpected factor really helped I guess from the electricity perspective but uh, I still gonna have to side with Derek Rose on that one so thanks for that question Hoop Capitan so at Hoop Capitan on Twitter next question though comes from at VJ Vemu so VJ is a contributor at Bloggables for those who aren't aware so follow VJ for some Bulls content but VJ asked me, how do you rate David Nwaba's impact this season? Do you see him being here for the long term? So I touched on David Nwaba before and his impact and how he sort of, yeah, I guess moved past my expectation and how he's exceeded those. And I think his impact has been really noticeable in the last three games where the Bulls have played without him. So I talked before about the Bulls having that defensive hustle and that identity of, 
I guess what we were sort of used to seeing from the Bulls maybe a few years ago where they were really hustling hard on the perimeter and really chasing rebounds, sort of starting transition from good defensive players. David Nwaba was bringing that. So I think his impact can't be understated at this point because he's really providing something that the Bulls wings don't currently have on the roster, which is a lot of athleticism, a lot of ability to defend and actually get out there and make plays in transition. So Nwaba was certainly an impactful player and I think... That's been evident in the the last three games where the Bulls have been without him. You don't really have a player out there that pops athletically on the wing. You, If I refer to this Spurs game today where you're playing a lot of Denzel Valentine and Paul Zipser and even running Jerry and Grant sometimes at shooting guard, that's not a really an athletic wing combination. Whereas you put someone like David Nwaba out there that can really jump and really play that baseline cutting role really well, it really makes a difference. So... I think he gave the Bulls something different and his impact has certainly been noticeable, particularly now that he's been out. Now, to the second part of your question, which relates to Nwaba being a long-term piece or a potential long-term piece for the Bulls, I think it's probably way too early to make that call purely because he wasn't in that starting role for a long time. And I guess I want to see him play a little bit more and and see what he can do, do in more minutes, particularly when someone like Zach Levine comes back and how that rotation meshes once you've got Levine back and and Justin Holiday around and what you do with Denzel Valentine and Paul Zipser and does David David Nwaba still emerge as a option in this current rotation and if that's so then maybe you keep him around for next season and sort of see how he progresses on hopefully a better team next season but I don't think he's necessarily a long-term answer at starting small forward he can be a long-term answer potentially as a third or fourth wing, but I think that's going to be completely dependent on who the Bulls draft, who they can pick up in free agency, as well as the contract that Nwaba will potentially earn going forward if some other team were to come forward and offer him a four-year deal at $8 million, example, a Felicio-type deal, then Nwaba is probably a type of player that you let go on that type of deal. So, It'll be interesting to see how he establishes himself going forward, but I think he's certainly been an impactful player. And if he can continue to play this way, then he's someone that the Bulls should keep an eye on because he may be able to provide some really good basketball for the Bulls going forward, but I want to see a little bit more before I commit to him long-term. So thank you for that question, VJ. Really appreciate you sending that through, particularly a question around David Nwaba. Probably my favorite ball at the moment. So if you've got any other questions around Nwaba, send them through. I'm more than happy to bang on about Nwaba for a long time. But out of the interest of time, I'll move on to another question. And this one comes through from Stefan No. So Stefan already got a shout out earlier on the show for his piece around Robin Lopez. But Stefan also asked a question that he knew will pull on my heartstrings. And he asked me about Matthew Deliver, Matthew Deliver Dover. So at Steph knows, if you're not following Stefan, do so. But he asks... Dally to the Bulls would actually make some sense. Bucks need to shed some salary for Parker next year, for Jabari Parker, that is. Bulls have cap space. Question, do you feel national shame for not pushing this idea first? Now, I do feel some shame because I actually thought about this proposition the minute that the Bucks dealt for Eric Bledsoe. I thought Dally would be someone that may have his minutes squeezed and given that the Bulls have some issues at point guard and I've also been peddling this idea that the Bulls need a veteran point guard of sorts in there to be a bit of a mentor for Chris Dunn and Jerry Grant 
And obviously, given my accent, um, you would pick up that I'm probably a bit of a homer when it comes to all things Matthew Dolliver Dover, and that's exactly what I am. And it also doesn't hurt that he plays a very similar style to one of my heroes, who is Kirk Heinrich. So um, I know Stefan has sort of put this question in there as a bit of a uh, a jovial one, I'll put it that way. But I think there is a little bit of sense to this question. So the Bulls are obviously a team that can take on salary and they should definitely be looking to taking on bad contracts from other teams. Now, I wouldn't say Dali is necessarily a bad contract. I don't think he's a good contract at this point. But if the Bucks could sort of send Dali in a second round pick to the Bulls for maybe, for, maybe Miritich, let's say, Maybe that's something both teams would entertain. Obviously, the 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 Bucks need to shed some salary. Miritich has a team option on that second year of his deal, so maybe that'd be interesting in taking on Miritich. And in return, the Bulls can take back Daly to sort of mentor that point guard group as well as getting in that second round pick. So maybe that's something that could happen. And I would be all for it. Obviously, it's um, it would be awesome for me to have an Australian on this team. Definitely would make this rebuilding process a lot easier for me. But I also think there would be some on-court basketball merit to it as well. So I'm sure many Bulls fans will repel at the name Matthew Dellavedova and the idea of him wearing a Bulls uniform given his timing at the Cavs and, and how he sort of played. But uh, I would personally love it. But... um. We'll see if it happens. I don't think it's probably likely, but I would be all for it. So fingers crossed, Dally to the Bulls. Let's try to speak that into existence because it will make me very, very happy. So uh, thanks for that question, Stefan. And also thank you to everyone else that sent through a question. I, I really do appreciate it. And to anyone listening to this show as well, I really do appreciate your support as well. So if you do have any feedback around the podcast, anything that you would like to offer up in terms of some constructive criticism i'm always open to that so you can hit me up at mk hoops on twitter uh, dms are open so if you have any feedback i'd be interested to hear it um and if you also have a spare moment if you happen to or if you could jump on itunes and give me a review of sorts hopefully a five-star review that would also be greatly appreciated i hate i hate asking for that sort of stuff but um it does help in terms of the itunes rankings so that would be very helpful. Um, as I've mentioned before, I'm trying to get this thing out on a weekly basis. So I'm, I'll be coming back to you next Monday morning, US time. So hopefully it's a better week for the Bulls next week. Not necessarily in the win department, but hopefully they can play a little bit more competitive uh, out there and don't necessarily get destroyed by 39 points like they did today against the Spurs. So hopefully it's a better week. But until then, I'll catch you next time. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.